Everybody knows what Coachella is. Even if you don't care about music, you know. The Coachella Valley Music and Arts Festival wrapped up yesterday. It's a huge concert, goes over two weekends. A rite of passage for any millennial is attending Coachella. This is not a rock concert. This is not Coachella. I came for the chaos, Coachella! The biggest artist in the world do Coachella. So, you know, the pressure's there to bring it. You cannot escape it, and it became Baychella. Beyonce took it over this weekend. All right, well, welcome back to another episode of the Soundworks Collection Quarantine Edition, which, uh, you know, we'll see how it, this dates us when we look back on this time. And today is April 15th. I am Michael Coleman. I am coming to you from the Bay Area, from my home. And today's guest is Eric Fisher with Autumn Audio. Who's, he's based in uh, Silver Lake, Los Angeles. And um, the reason why I want to talk with Eric is because he just wrapped up a fantastic documentary, which was about Coachella, the music festival that's been uh, taking place over the past 20 plus years. And um, it just came out on YouTube through Golden Voice and it was a partnership between Golden Voice and YouTube and a bunch of other folks. Eric, thanks so much for uh, joining. Thanks, dude. Great to be here. We first met many years ago, back in 2011. You were working on the documentary Pearl Jam 20 about the band Pearl Jam and it was a 20 year retrospective. And uh, you've been pretty busy since our last chat. Keeping busy, trying to. And yeah, man, that was that was that was a really cool interview. I loved doing that, and it was uh, it was awesome to meet you. And uh, uh, I'm glad we became friends and and stayed in touch all these years. Absolutely, yeah. Some of the other docs you've worked on over the years, some really fun ones: the Cadillac Tramps, Life on the Edge in 2017, Dapton Records, this Living on a Soul in 2017, and more recently now this Coachella. 20 years in the desert. Something that I really love about you and your work is that you're a big guitar shredder. And anyone could tell because <laughs> if anyone follows you on online, you'll uh, occasionally post pictures of your, your guitar pedal collection. And yeah, your, much, uh, much to my girl's dismay, I have, I have a collection. But your, your background is um, you come from a very musical background. You have a wonderful history of having your hand in the world of music. And I love just to kind of give people a little more background on the type of work that you've been doing, a little bit of how you got to where you are now working on music documentaries. And oh, before I forget, one of the other films that um, you also worked on was uh, the Jocko Pastorius one that you helped do some, do some of that about um, Jocko, yep. um, which came out a few years ago. So anyway, yeah, I'd love to just, why don't you share a little bit about your background and why the heck you chose to work on music docs? I've been playing guitar for 50 years. Um, I'm an old fart. And years and years ago in a former life, I built and repaired guitars, which kind of morphed into going to full sale down in Florida and mm -hmm. getting a degree there. And immediately after that, moving out here in about 93, when there was still a record business and people still recorded music on two-inch tape on big consoles and stuff. So... Uh, that was a hell of a lot of fun and uh, a great education. You know, I still maintain that if you started that way, all of this stuff that we do now just seems so much easier and so much more logical. But it was great. I've got, you know, I've got the scars on my hands to prove <laughs> that I edited two inch tape at three o'clock in the morning and, you know, all that. And it was, it was great. It was at a, a studio called Music Grinder in Hollywood and was just a great education. And after the, the record side of stuff, as we all know, kind of started to fall apart in the late 90s, uh, I got an offer to be a part of a company that did installations and wiring in L.A. called Virgo Recording Services. And, uh, 
and jumped on it and did that for 10 years and loved it. So I always had kind of a tech background, and and, and I think part of the reason I got hired at Music Grinder was because I knew how to run a soldering iron. Uh, so that was, you know, that was part of it. And I've always loved doing that. And I still do that. I built my own room partly cause I can do it partly cause I'm cheap, but, <laughs> um, so I've got, I've got both of those backgrounds, engineering, a little bit of music background and a little bit of tech background. And at some point in the mid two thousands, I kind of decided that I wanted to get back to engineering and didn't really see building a music studio as something I wanted to do. And I was really fascinated by film mix. So I decided to build kind of a film mix room uh, here at my place. And it paid off. It was a lot of work. There's been a lot of years of, you know, the same stuff everybody who's independent goes through. Looking for work is not is not easy. But once you kind of find a, a groove, it's great. And I've been I've been super lucky. I mixed a couple of short things just to kind of get my feet wet, and then through just pure nepotism, my brother who worked for Camera Crow recommended me for Pearl Jam Twenty, mm-hmm. and everybody was on board with it, and it worked out great. It was you know that was the path. So it was one of those it was one of those projects that was just just all around a real blessing. Great bunch of people to work with. I get to mix a ton of music that had never been heard before and mixed the movie itself uh and it was great it was great everybody was super proud of that flick all the people that worked on it still stay in touch and in fact chris perkel who was one of the two editors on pearl jam directed the coachella movie and i've I've mixed a bunch of stuff for chris a george foreman documentary and some other some other stuff so just looking at chris perkel's kind of roster here of projects that were i guess most recently in 2017 did that clive davis the soundtrack of our lives documentary the most recent one yeah uh, which was really fantastic and i think what happened Yeah, well, what happens with these documentaries is there is so much material, musical material that gets put into these films that yeah, uh, when you start the project, like, this is cool. How hard could it be? How right. much material could we possibly right. be working with? And then when I, after I watched this Coachella documentary, I said, can you send me the list of all the things that you mixed? Right, right. Holy shit. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. It's not. It's a lot. A sh- it's not a short list. So when did first Chris first reach out to you? When did you find out about this project? And what did they say? Like, where was the project at, at that stage? Actually, believe it or not, I don't know everybody says this, but it's a great story. The, the, the path of this movie is a really cool story. And I'm going to pull up the list of music, too, that yep. I, I gave you. Uh, Chris and I, like I said, remain friends and, and have, have stayed friends since we did the Pearl Jam movie in 2011. So we actually play trivia every Wednesday night. So <laughs> I think I think he's obligated to hire me to mix his movies because we play trivia every Wednesday. And it would be difficult to face me if he didn't. <laughs> Just kidding, of course. Uh, actually, he Chris got involved in this movie at least a good five years ago. And if, if anyone's really curious, they can go... And check out um, uh, a Reddit talk that Chris and uh, the amazing uh, Raymond Roker, the one of the one of the producers who was was with AEG, uh, he and, he and Raymond did a, an AMA at at Reddit a couple of days ago that was really good, and it explains in in detail what happened. But Chris got involved with the project I want to say five years ago. I think partly because of Pearl Jam, so they were doing it as not vignettes, but like little short forms about different genres of music at Coachella. So 
that never really got any traction. They they put some time into it, and I actually went to a couple of meetings about it too. Five years ago, we were talking about oh, you know, some of this music that we're working with is really bad. What can we do with it? And so the that lay the groundwork for what what we ended up doing. I think I I don't honestly know why that never happened, why that project never happened. But for some reason, a few years later, they kind of started Raymond and the guys at AEG started playing with it a little bit and said. We should do a 20th anniversary doc, which we should kind of roll this idea into that. So Chris, of course, was was back on board for that to direct it. Chris also has a history of working for AEG Golden Voice, shooting B-roll and interviews at the festival mm-hmm. at Coachella, and has for years with his guys, Blake Everhart, who's kind of his right hand man, and uh, and their kind of his kind of band of guys have been at the festival for years filming interviews and stuff so he had he knew more than anybody what was in the vaults and what was there for the movie they also from the very beginning of the festival multi-track almost every performance wow so they've they've had from the beginning people like uh Guy Charbonneau at Le Mobile recording the weekends so there was a vault of stuff of of almost everything and they, of course the same with picture for for them for editing and stuff so just to kind of tie up the 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 length of time chris has been working on this there's sequences in the movie that they roughly cut together five six years ago okay when they were first starting on it so which is kind of neat i think to get back to your question in the fall of 2018 i got started chris and i sat down i sat down with the producers and we started talking about the mix and i knew that they'd recorded almost everything so i was like okay well the first job is to track down every multi-track we can of the performances that are in the movie because they were relatively far along with the edit by then so that involved finding out, okay, who recorded what year? Did they have everything? No, most people don't keep that stuff. That gets sent to AEG, which gets put in their vault. So Lindsay Watkins, who also worked for Chris, and I went to the quote-unquote vault where all this stuff was stored in, in Glendale, California, and started going through everything because it was really it was badly notated and through no nobody's fault, but it was just like you take – boxes of hard drives and tapes and and picture and you put it all in storage and they just marked the box with a number without regard with what's in it so we spent the first month i was on this project was just Lindsay and i going through stuff and finding okay where is this where's that where's this year what is this year and then the process goes to uh, transferring stuff. A lot of stuff was recorded on on uh, DA eighty eights. There was some stuff that was recorded on the big Sony thirty three forty eight, the thing that looks like a washing machine, uh, <laughs> and and a bunch of Pro Tools. So that was that was the beginning of the process for me, and I was doing that while they were finishing the edit, meaning they weren't ready for me quite yet to mix or to start mixing the movie. So we got started on the music. So. That's pretty much the beginning of the project as far as my involvement, and that was that was a lot of fun. I actually like it's, it's a bit of a dumpster dive kind of thing, yeah. you know what I mean? Going through and finding everything. So some stuff we couldn't find, some stuff they didn't have. And again, in reference to the list that I sent you, mm-hmm. if anyone cares about it while they're watching the movie, there are some performances where, for whatever reason, the band's management or the bands themselves said, we don't need to multi-track it, just a stereo mix for the live stream on YouTube is fine. 
but the the guys that work for the company that does all the video and audio for the festival now, it's a company called Springboard out of Chicago run by a legendary guy named Hank Newberger who mm-hmm. has owned post facilities in L.A. and owns Chicago Recording Company in Chicago. So Springboard, since 2012, maybe a little earlier, has done everything, all the video, all the audio, and they multi-track what they can. You would ha- I would have a stereo mix from the, the truck. I would have the front of house mix. And then generally six audience mics, like an up close, a halfway back, and then an all the way back. So there's maybe a third of the movie is that kind of stuff. Things like Radiohead, we never found the multi-tracks for. They were there somewhere, but we never found them. Um, a lot of the electronic stuff was just stereo tracks with mm-hmm. audience. So... I could at least make flesh it out to be a 5.1 mix with the audience. The Drain Snoops performance, a Tupac thing, that relatively long bit, that was all stereo with audience. Mm-hmm. But the, the rest of it, and, and especially most of the band stuff, we, I, we found multi-tracks for all of it. So I, I got to go back and do complete from scratch 5.1 mixes to then drop into the movie. So um, just for like a little context, I'm, I'm ho- hopefully people can check out this film because there's moments in the film where you highlight a certain song, for instance, like Rage Against the Machine, right. Beyonce, uh, right. Morrissey, the Pixies, the White Stripes, where like yeah. you play, it's not just kind of background or like a little motif. You actually allow the audience to hear these performances. And, and within the context of the Coachella's history, there's pivotal moments where these artists were hip hop or rap or EDM actually played a role in the festival because for someone who's producing a festival at the time it, it seemed very challenging to, to understand if we can put some of these artists on the main stage which I just love about this look back because I've never been to Coachella I've been to many music festivals all around the country but now understanding and watching this film I have a better understanding and appreciation for what it's done because these types of festivals I mean they're saying in 2017 over the two weekends about a quarter of a million 250,000 people attend yeah and so um the only way to ever really compare this to anything is some of the bigger uk festivals where this right. has been going on for a long time right so what i'd love for you to describe is when you did have that locked picture and they you knew that you were going to be mixing some of of these specific tracks would you only mix that specific section or you would just treat the whole song you'd mix do the whole thing how, how did you go about um, handling those features yeah that's a really good question um i, I so uh, from from a Pro Tools workflow standpoint, the workflow was I would I would have the full performance, meaning I would have the full set the band played. Uh, this is going to sound very funny, but I'd have to go online and look at a website called Last FM. Oh, sure, yeah. That has set lists, and I'd have to go. Okay, this this weekend, this band at Coachella. Where did this song fall in their set, mm-hmm. right? Then I have to go back to the Pro Tools session that had the entire set and go, oh, okay, that looks like that's it right there. Instead of spending an hour and a half listening to the entire set, that was the easiest way to just go, okay, it's it's 40 minutes into the set roughly, that's it right there. Yep. I would, and, and with the multitracks, I would carve that out, create a new session, and mix the entire song. Okay. I'll explain why it it seemed easier for me to do it that way is first and foremost, when you've got six to eight audience microphones, they're out of time with the music. Oh, sure. Yeah. Because they're farther away. So you get that slight delay. And if you put all the faders up and listen to the music and then listen to the audience, it sounds really funny and flanged and ping pong echoey Mm -hmm. because all the audience stuff is just slightly off. So so the first the first move is to line all the audience tracks up. You find a snare drum, line them all up, 
sounds good. It sounds full. Um, and, and as a side note to that, um, these are all outdoor recordings. So there's really no reflective surfaces. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like if I was taking microphones of a band in a stadium or like in the, uh, in the, 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 the Daptones when it was recorded at the Apollo in New York, you get a nice reverb from it because they're actually in a, in a closed space. So these are outdoors. You get, it's a very different kind of thing, but it really adds up nicely when you get everything in time. Then I would mix the entire performance, a uh, 90% there rough mix. Mm -hmm. And then I would print two stems within that, within that, that music mix. I would print a 5.1 stem of the, the band, the music. I, I put lead vocal, maybe background vocals in the center channel. I would get a little bit of a subwoofer, but it was more important to have everything sound full without the subwoofer. Subwoofer is just a little fun thing. And then a 5.1 kind of mix down of the audience track. So I would have two stems that I would then import into what are what you know and I know are called reels of the movie. Mm -hmm. When when you're mixing a movie in Pro Tools or whatever, it gets cut up into 20-minute pieces. So I, this movie was about six reels at about 20 minutes a piece. So then I can I can take those mixes and import them into the reel, line it up, and then I have to match the editor's edit. Makes sense? Mm -hmm. So even though I'm importing the full-length version of the song, I have to cut it up so it matches how they cut it up for picture. And it just and it just seemed easier for me to do that than to cut up the multi-tracks to match the edit and then mix that. This way, we're ready to go pretty much if if the soundtrack gets greenlit. Yeah. I've got I've got full performances of, of all the songs mixed pretty much ready to go. I have to do a little re a little rebalancing to make them stereo. So that was kind of the workflow. And then you can do and then in Pro Tools, most people know this, you can you can set it up so that if you need to make changes to the to the five point mixes of the music, you can go back to that section, make the changes, reprint it, and then go back to the reels for the movie and drop them in and they come up with all the edits and stuff so you don't have to right, have to redo it, that yeah, right yeah exactly exactly so and that turned out to be a really good thing for a couple of reasons chris and blake and his as his editors had been working with line cuts of the music and i'm sure you know what that is and i kind of knew what it was but mm -hmm. it's basically especially for the first 10 years of the festival where they weren't live streaming it there wasn't a whole lot of finesse put into the music mixes and the music, the multi-track recordings of the mixes because they weren't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. So the cameras would get reference audio of the performances they were filming, kind of called line cuts. Mm -hmm. um, but they're, they're raw, rough mixes of the music. They're not final, fixed, finessed mixes. So they'd been using that stuff for years to cut the movie. And we're used to it. What they also didn't have was the audience tracks that I had, which is the actual live audience with the performances. So it was a little bit of a challenge when we got to the point where Chris and I sat down and he started to hear some of the mixes I was importing into the mix of the movie. So and it, just to backtrack just a little bit. So then after a month or maybe two months of that in, in December of 2018, they were locked and I started to mix the movie in addition to mixing, to continue to mix the music as it was getting put in. So anyway, so the first time Chris sat down to hear the music I'd mixed in the, in the cut, he was shocked because it didn't sound anything like what they'd spent two years working on. So there was a little bit of a period of like, okay, so what do we do with this? Do we, do we make these mixes standalone as they, you know, as someone who had never heard it before 
would mix them, which is what I did because I hadn't really heard their line cuts? Or do we try to kind of massage it to get a little bit closer to what the editors have been listening to? Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so we kind of found a nice balance where everybody was happy. I felt like we'd actually improved upon the line cuts. They felt like we were still kind of referencing the energy of it because, of course, everybody at AEG had been hearing all these old line cuts in the in the the picture edits that they were watching and approving. So, uh, so that was interesting. And you know, hindsight being twenty twenty, we probably would have but you've done it differently. But you never, you couldn't. There's no way you could have done that. And then the other kind of not challenge, but but yeah, it was a bit of a challenge. Was that was that I had fresh audience tracks for everything. And as, as you know from watching the movie, there's all kinds of crossfades and overlap with the audience tracks. It really kind of carries a lot of the, the movie. And they didn't have what I had. So they were using not fake stuff, but stuff that they'd found from other places in the festival and some library stuff to kind of fill out all that. And they were used to it. So we that was another thing we had to kind of like work with to get to get it to a point where they were happy with the new stuff that I had as fresh audience tracks. And I think we balanced it out really nicely. Can you give a little insight to some, maybe some of these specific tracks, what you found when you start going? I mean, there's some really pivotal performances. I can think of uh, the White Stripes one, Morrissey's, Prince's, I mean, Rage's. When you start listening to those individual multi-tracks, what were some of the things that were obvious in terms of from over the years? Because we're, we're looking at stuff that even dates back to tw- uh, 2003. Um, yeah. And I can imagine that, you know, you're talking about the different formats that these are recorded on. Headroom was different. Digital is different than analog. And, and like, there's different considerations when it comes to like what you have to work with. So when you did start going track by track, what were some of the things that became obvious? How did you shape stuff? What was your workflow? What were some of the, the, the plugins that you found were actually really helpful to really carve out these tracks and make them sound like they right. did? Yeah. It's a tribute to the guys that they've hired over the years to record these shows because I, I don't think there was anything where I opened up a multi-track and went, oh, no, you know. Mm-hmm. This is this is going to be a problem. Everything sounded really good, even back from the early days. One of my favorite mixes in the movie, and I don't, I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm just because it's so, it's such yeah. a nice moment in the movie. Is the Morrissey track, which was from 1999. Yeah, yeah. So that was early, and if I'm not mistaken, that was taken from analog, from two inch tape. So that sounded fantastic. Sleep on And I think the history of the show is that remote recording guys probably soon after that started working with Tascam DA88s, which is, you know, the 8-track cassette format. That's very good. They're really good sounding machines. So I all of that stuff sounded really good too, because that would have been like the Pixies and the Rapture and the White Stripe stuff was all probably came from D88 and sounded really good because these guys do really good work. Usually these remote trucks have a really nice analog desk and those guys are just amazing at their jobs. Yeah. Again, you know, I gotta I gotta give huge shout outs to Hank Newberger and Chris Shepard, the guys at, at Springboard, who took over in 2010, 12-ish. So by that time, it was all Pro Tools. I think by mid-2000s, of all the performances, everything was Pro Tools. So I I didn't really notice any, I didn't have any challenges, any problems with that stuff. Funny story, I don't think Chris, our director, will mind me telling the story, Mm -hmm. is sometimes when you're working really fast and trying to keep like a 10-hour day 
so you don't go crazy. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I didn't get a chance to actually listen to what you would call their edit mix. So is it like when you get picture to start mixing something, the editor will send you all the individual files in an OMF and then a stereo mix of what they've been listening to. And you don't, I don't always have the chance to listen to that carefully. And the Jane's Addiction performance of, I think it's Beach, I think is the song called, mm-hmm. there's vocals throughout the entire song. Perry's clearly singing versus choruses. And so I mixed it that way. Well, the, since it was early on in the festival, the, the line mix that they had didn't have Perry's lead vocal in it. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like he, mm-hmm. they didn't, they'd never heard the vocal that I heard because it was on, you know, the multi-track. So mm-hmm. I mixed it with Perry's vocal, and we, I dropped it in the edit, and we went to listen to it. And Chris, Chris was literally like, "What is that? That's not going to work." Because if you watch the movie, they mixed or they edited the their performance so that Perry's not singing on camera until he w- gets ushered on stage by these hotties. Mm-hmm. And sings the right. final line of the song. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I never I never would have thought of that. I never it never would have occurred to me that's not supposed to be there because they didn't have it. I had it, but they didn't have it. They didn't know it was there. So that was easy. And that's one of the benefits of of having mixed it the way I mixed it, is that I didn't have to go back to the mix. I just pulled out the center channel in the music stem and his vocals gone. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's awesome. Well, how did you find? Um, I'm so curious just about this Rage Against the Machine performance in 2007. Mm-hmm. It was a yeah. pivotal performance. They had just they'd been on hiatus for a few years and they hadn't really performed. And then they had come out and did this huge thing at Coachella, yeah, 2007. So listening to that, what was that like? Amazing, amazing. Just as a music fan, there was a run there where they were the best rhythm section in rock music, literally. And they're the kind of band that doesn't do anything unless they really kill it. So there was just an amazing performance. Pulling up that multi-track to listen to it and to get the mix ready was amazing. And I love the way Chris used that in the movie. He was really conscious of the emotional points and the dots he was trying to connect in the overall arc of the festival. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think that's one of the best moments in the movie. I, everybody, everybody comments about that too. So, mm-hmm. but it's it was so great. And that was another one that we went back and forth a little bit on the mix, Chris and I. It was really fun for cause Chris is a huge music fan. So this is for him a labor of love project too. Not that. Everything we don't do is sure. Everything we do is fun and a lot of and a lot of enjoyment. So it was fun to sit down with him as a film director, and he would put on his uh, music producer hat, and we would sit and work on the mix from that standpoint, which was great. Same thing with just about everything. We it was very collaborative. There was a lot of um, uh, a lot of conversations about about stuff and. And I, I think that's just, you know, they're just a straight-up, unbelievable rock band. So to mix that was was a lot of fun. Something that we were talking about before we started recording, I was really curious just about, you know, the deliverable. You did a 5.1, you did a stereo. Yeah. The film is currently featured, and ha- it was meant to be released with this YouTube partnership. And so it's been online now. It came out on April 10th. Um, it looks like we're just at about 1.3 million views. Yep. And um, my question to you was, I watched it on my home system in my in my office and I have a pair of you know studio monitors I have a 4K screen I watched streamed it in 4K and then I look at some of the audio deliverables 
for YouTube. Yeah. And I want and I wonder what's there, what's not there. What was it like for you delivering this, knowing that it's going to be premiering and being predominantly featured on a streaming format like uh, YouTube? It's the first time I've done that or had or been asked to do that. And I, I have to apologize. I've been remiss. I need to go. I need to go look and find the 4K 5.1 on-demand version of this that YouTube mm-hmm. offers. Um, I have. Yeah, I think I think own. it's through the. I think you can do that through the YouTube TV. Yep. Yeah. Feature through, through their um, app. Yeah. Yeah. So through their app. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have a decent home theater and a TV with the app, I think you can get at the the 4K 5.1 mix. So since I love mixing music too, and I get to do it often enough, I have, in addition to my main monitors, I have a pair of Aventone mix cubes. You know, they're the little, mm-hmm. they're they're like the an updated version of what were Oritones, the little mm-hmm. like five inch, they're, and they're great. So it's good to sit and reference the stereo down mix of the 5.1 mix on those which is a decent representation of what it would sound like on your average television. So it was a little bit of a challenge to make absolutely sure that we weren't going crazy on the 5.1 mix and that that stuff wouldn't translate because, as, as most people know, you're doing all these mixes simultaneously. There's the, the 5.1 mix is being run through a plugin called the Down Mix, and you're doing all of that at the same time. So you have the ability to quickly switch back and forth and see how things sound in different formats. So like, like I say, this is the first time I've done that, but I was super happy with, like like I'd, I'd mentioned to you earlier when we were talking, I listened to about 45 minutes of it on my iPhone mm-hmm. uh, Sunday, the day after it debuted, and was thrilled not not that i'm a genius but i was like <laughs> sure that sounds really good yep. like i can hear the music clearly under your under the interviews all the dialogue is nice and clean the music doesn't overpower anywhere the performances sound good i'm hearing i'm hearing what i want to hear on my phone so that was really pleasant i was really happy about that but like i said this is the first time i've mixed a movie that's going to be primarily viewed on people's laptops and phones and ipads that's just crazy but while we were working i would uh, over the past year, I would upload stuff to my my Vimeo account and sit at my laptop and listen to it just to make absolutely sure we weren't getting too married to the 5.1 mix on the nice big speakers. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's great. So um, now that the film has been out and it's streaming, uh, the, the question I had for you is, you know, what's next for this project? Because there's so much wonderful music that you had a chance to mix and uh, ex- performances that have never been released. I imagine... And as you've alluded to, you've mixed all these from top to bottom. Yeah. Uh, my hope is is that at some point these could be released. Which tracks were left behind? I'm sure there was stuff you came across in the vault that you were like, oh, man, yeah. I, I hope this makes the cut. What was some yeah. of the stuff you came across uh, early on that, that didn't make the cut? Really only one thing didn't make the movie that I was really disappointed in. That, and everybody was disappointed that it didn't make the cut. It was just one of those things that kind of at some point it had to go. Just manic performance. I think it was, I think it's a song called Breath. Oh, Prodigy? Yeah. Just in, this insane performance. It's not like a killer bass drums guitar recording. It was pretty crazy turntables and ye- yelly background mm-hmm. hype guys. But it turned out really good, and it looked great on screen, and it did not make the movie. But I think... To answer your question, it's going to be an extra on YouTube. Okay. The full performance. I Because mi- I mixed the full performance, and I'm pretty sure they're going to put that up some point in, in connection with this as a full performance. I know the Billie Eilish is now up 
connected with the movie uh, that full performance. Mm-hmm. I think the Morrissey is going to be. I delivered a few weeks ago the entire mix, uh, the the mm-hmm. entire performance, and Chris and I have been pushing for them to do it too, which would mean they would have to create you know picture to match it, of course. But I don't know if you remember this, but when we did the Pearl Jam movie, my brother, who was a producer on the movie, said we should put out a second disc, a second Blu-ray with the full performances from the movie. And everybody, the band and the management said, that's a great, and Cameron said, that's a great idea. So they mm-hmm. did it. So if you buy the Pearl Jam thing, there's an extra disc that has complete uninterrupted performances of every song that's edited into the movie. And we thought that would be a great idea for this too, especially with YouTube. Mm-hmm. So you'd be able to watch any full performance that you want. So I don't know if that's gonna happen. I think they ran into some licensing issues with that, it's complicated. But you and I were, were also talking about the soundtrack, mm-hmm. uh, which um, I urge anybody who's listening to this to call your senator, call your congressman, get a write-in candidate a write-in uh, campaign happening but we would really love to do a soundtrack and i think i think everybody at aeg golden voice uh really wants to do a soundtrack too yeah so that's something that's been talked about quite a bit everybody wants to do it it would not be much of a gear shift for me to generate that stuff we would go in and, and probably chris and i the director would sit down and and tweak the mixes a little bit for stereo for slightly different performance but it would be so much. We, Chris and I talked about it, and my brother too. My brother Andy Fisher, who ran Cameron Crowe's record label for a long time, was involved and has, has already done some artwork and stuff. It just looks fantastic, and it's a great idea. But we, you know, we had all kinds of great ideas, like making it play like chronological with crossfades with all the audience, so it feels like a concert. That's the problem when you work on projects that you're like, we're just music fans, we're film fans, but when you really work on something like, yeah, I think we should do this. Like that usually does that only really happens for special projects, and this really feels like the special project that yep. that it, it, it is. The, the, the thing that reminded me of it, I remember in um, when Woodstock did their '99, I think it was a double CD release of right of the release, and and then that reminded me of this in a way. It's an opportunity to go back and and really enjoy some of these pivotal performances that have been stored away until now. Yeah, totally. I think there's a lot of these tunes that would really I you know, looking at looking at the list in front of me right now, there's just so many of these performances that would be great on a soundtrack and would play cool in context too, you know? Uh, Amy Winehouse, Bjork, uh, the Chains Addiction performance, um, Kanye's two thousand six performance with the live strings and a harp on stage. Uh, the LCD sound system, uh, Pixies, of course, which is one of my favorite performances in the movie. And, of course, Prince. That was rad. Mixing a Prince song, <laughs> that was really cool. That was really cool. I love the way Chris and, and Blake put that whole section of the movie together. That's, for, for people who haven't seen it yet, that's the credits is is, is Prince. So they, they, they found some stuff from that set and made this really great kind of setup intro to the song that it segues into and it's really great So I'd love for you to just spend a little time. What has been your takeaway when mixing live performances? It's very different than a studio setting. It's 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 unique in of itself. Yeah. 
Can you dig in and like open the hood a little bit on what do you find in really makes a difference? How do you take something that is a two track and make it into a five one? What, what have you found has really been some of those unlocking moments? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question, and and there was a lot of kind of learning on the fly with that stuff because that was a relatively new experience for me for the movie, mm-hmm. um, and like we talked about earlier, about a third of the movie is stuff that they didn't either the band didn't want to pay for, or management didn't want to pay for multi tracking, so we had really super high quality mixes from the recording truck. Again, the guys at Springboard just do a phenomenal job, so I would have let's take the the Dre and Snoop and Tupac bit. <laughs> I would have a two-track full mix of the music and the, the lyrics, the raps, everything. And then I would have all the audience mics. Also, I would probably have the front of house mix, too, from the live front of house board. And that actually came in really handy. And since everything's digital, it's super easy to line stuff up by the sample so I can layer the front of house with the board mix if I needed if I felt maybe the board mix needed a little something that the front of house had I could layer those two together and the other advantage to that is that not to get too into the weeds but the live mixes from the truck the two track mixes have the audience baked into it and their audience mics are all the out of time audience mics that we talked about earlier and I wanted to add the raw audio mics that were recorded to create a 5.1 mix. So you got two mics probably at the stage. Those are the left would be my left and right. You'd have two mics or two mics probably back near the, the front of house board. I would probably put those in the left, right, and left surround, right surround, kind of give you a little side fill. And then whatever deep mics they had would go in the surround speak, my surround speakers. So you combine that with the stereo off the truck, and it actually feels really good because all that music is included in the, the audience mics, and it gives it a nice depth. That was one approach. Come with me, Hail Mary, take a run quick, see what do we have here now? The other approach was sometimes we had stereo music tracks especially with the more electronic stuff like maybe Kanye, uh, his 2011 performance of Power. We had a stereo music bed, and then I had separate audio. I had separate vocal mics, too. Bad Bunny, too, who was a pretty interesting character from 2019. I had the onstage mics, the, the singers and the rappers, and then the music separate. So I could create an even more serious 5.1 mix. I could put all the, the, the raps in the center, music left and right, audience in the surrounds, and then you just shave off a little bottom and throw that in the subwoofer for the full effect. So with that stuff where it was, I was limited in what we had, we were still able to create stuff that sat next to the full mixes pretty well, I think. And some of the mixes were so good by the guys in the trucks, like the Future Islands mix Mm -hmm. sounds amazing, really good. I didn't mix that. The Radiohead mix Sounds fantastic. I didn't mix that. Those were just stereo mixes that we fit into the, the the format of the rest of it. And then as far as the full band mix stuff, it's pretty much business as usual. There was a couple of instances where I felt maybe the kick drum needed to be a little bit more consistent, so I would do a drum replacement kind of thing. But I always used the drummer's kick drum. I would find one hit that I really liked and lay that into the entire performance. Mm-hmm. 
you know, all the obvious stuff that you do in the studio, you make sure that, that if there's two kick drum mics, they're both in phase. If you make sure that the, the bass and the DI and a microphone, they're in phase, you flip the phase on, you know, obvious stuff like that. But I think the the big thing, and I've mixed enough live stuff at this point, is learning what to clean up and what not to clean up. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because you've got all this rumble and bleed around the stage that's in everything. Uh, you have to kind of make decisions as to, well, okay, if I really want the bass to speak, I'm going to have to find ways to get rid of it in, you know, the drum overheads. Or, you know, it's leaking into the guitar mics or whatever. So... You have to find subtle ways to filter that stuff out with high-pass filters and such, but, you know, it, it's not rocket science. Yeah. But uh, the one thing that I started doing that I really, really like, and I started doing this a while ago, is I'll take the lead vocal in the center channel because I really like the way that feels in a surround format. It cleans the whole mix up nicely, and I think it folds down better, too. And and this this gets to what you were talking about about the challenges of of mixing live performances is you've got singers wandering around the stage, uh, maybe getting close to a side fill monitor, maybe you know what I mean. Yeah. Maybe they're standing right next to the drummer, and there's all kinds of cymbal bleed in the vocal mic. So what I've started doing that I'm really happy with is that I'll create two vocal tracks, and I'll take everything in between what they're singing and leave it in the center channel, but bring it way down so that it's it doesn't leave holes in between what they're singing. There's still a little ambience that's being picked up by their vocal mic, and it doesn't feel quite so bare, and it and it kind of brings the band into the center channel a little bit. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, so it's just kind of a, kind of a, a slightly creative way of editing the, the vocal mic in the center channel um, so you don't... Because clearly if you left the vocal mic up, all the way through the entire thing, you would get all kinds of ugly phase stuff um, of the instruments bleeding into the vocal mic and they're in a different place on stage now, blah, blah, blah. So, but if you can bring that way back and still get that kind of like, there's still something, uh, there's still something there and it works good. But you can put, you know, you can put vocal reverbs and delays in the left and the right so it's not all mono up the center mm-hmm. and it gives it a, at least to me, a nicer feel. There was a, a surprising amount of stuff, and this goes to what you were you were asking about. And I can imagine people going, "Well, why would you need to change anything if you were mixing it for the soundtrack?" Uh, and it it is different. It is different when when I got requests from YouTube to to get them uh, stereo versions of of full performances. It was so far it's only been a couple. The Morrissey stands out. I did actually sit down and go, "Okay, I'm going to play with this just a little bit because when you put a 5.1 mix of a band up against picture, it's different than the stereo mix for the soundtrack or what it would be. Chris and I have really, thankfully, really similar views about what music should look like on screen. So we didn't go crazy with huge, deep stadium reverbs. Everything is kind of, as I'm sure you noticed, a little bit more in your face with the music. It's it's kind of my own personal. I'd like to see on screen what I would have loved it to have sounded like if I were there. Mm. If that makes sense, I I like a little bit less of. It's just a different approach to mixing live music. Chris and I both don't like it to be terribly reverberant and that faux big live sound thing. It's a little bit more fun to hear the instruments clearly because you're seeing the band so clearly on stage so so it's a slightly not drier approach but a little less dramatic as far as like the big reverbs with my workflow i was mixing stuff 5.1 uh without picture 
because I was going to import it into the picture where there's an edit that I would have to match. And you do that and you go, oh, okay, that really sounded cool without picture, but now it feels funny because of what I'm looking at. So you would go back and maybe, okay, the bass player needs to drive this a lot more because he's very clearly animated and on stage. That's got to be a little bit more important. So like with the Rapture, we we played with, Chris and I played with that one a little bit and got, got it to be a little bit more funky, a little bit more bass-oriented. The LCD sound system, we went back and forth on that mix just based on the cowbell. Oh, wow. The cowbell is like, that drives that song, and it's on screen, so I, I mixed it at first the way I felt like it should sound, and we put it up against picture, and Chris was like, more cowbell. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Literally. That's a good song, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, because that's, that's what drives the song, so, and it, and it becomes really apparent on screen when that happens. So, I suspect that if we're lucky enough to get to the soundtrack, which, again, write in your, your congressman. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll see, he and I'll probably sit down and actually go through all the mixes again and just kind of tweak stuff, especially for stereo. Yeah, I mean, for folks who want to check out the film, it's uh, doc.coachella.com is a website. Um, there's a wonderful kind of timeline of all the milestones that the film kind of hits and talks about why there are pivotal performances. Beyonce, Kendrick Lamar, Outkast, Tame Impala. The Tame Impala performance mm. is incredible. Yeah, yeah. I really, I, yeah. I, I, I forgot how much I love that band live. It's been, yeah. that was from 2013. Um, but Eric, we can find you at Autumn Audio. Where else, where else can we find you? Uh, that's, that's, uh, that's it. I think I'm, I'm, I'm audio, audio, autumn audio on Instagram. I'm, I'm, I'm around. It's easy. Go find him in Silver Lake walking his dogs. You'll find me in Silver Lake walking the dogs three times a day. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, congratulations on this film, Coachella 20 Years in the Desert. I was blown away. I am a huge music doc fan. I absolutely love this film. It's so cool to uh, have this retrospective and, and just dig into the music so congratulations i'm honored man thanks so much for thinking of me i really appreciate it 